Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm still Simon Carley. And this is our roundup of all the activity that's been happening on the blog in May. And there's been a lot. It's been very busy. Admittedly, much of that has been coronavirus, COVID-19 based, but there's been other stuff too. A lot to talk about. We may be here a while, but let's see. Simon, let's start off with perhaps COVID-19, everybody's favourite and least favourite subject, it seems to be settling down a bit in the UK at the moment. New Zealand has declared themselves COVID free. Is interest waning in COVID? Where do you think we're at with it now? I think it's really difficult to know. We seem to be in a bit of a pause at the moment. I think most of us here in, in Manchester think there's going to be a return of cases fairly soon. But actually, possibly I would have expected to see them by now. And yet they're just still trickling in in small numbers. So who knows? It's a mysterious virus. We've never done it before. I don't know. We, we're prepared. We're ready. Let's just wait and see. And over the last four weeks, well, eight weeks, really, we've had these excellent journal clubs, the webinars, which Rick Body's been putting together with help from Charlie and Anissa and the support of the college, of course, and the University of Manchester. And we've covered so many different topics. But it does seem that some of the things we believed at the beginning, we've had to change. And where we are now is very different to where we were a couple of months ago. What do you think the main things are that you've learned going through all those papers, chatting with experts about COVID-19? Okay, so the, I mean, the number one thing is I'm embarrassed about how little virology I knew before we started any of this. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. Um, I think the working with the virologists, it's really interesting to understand how the virus actually um, invades the body, how it travels through the body. So, you know, just basic stuff that once you've got to the point where you've developed a viral pneumonia, you don't necessarily um, grow virus from your nasopharyngeal area because it's moved down into the lungs and vice versa. So where you take samples, how you take samples, which tests you use, and this idea that the antibody tests are great. Well, some of them are, and some of them are actually pretty rubbish. The, all the stuff that we've done around diagnostic testing and it being actually in many areas pretty unreliable, actually. That's been fascinating. The stuff about um, sewage was hilarious, but also potentially from a public health point of view, incredible. The fact that you can see a rise in SARS-CoV-2 in sewage slurry several days before you see the actual cases presenting to the ED. I mean, that's just incredible from a public health perspective. It takes us all the way back to cholera and the Broad Street pump. We started off looking very much at antiviral therapy. So looking at things like hydroxychloroquine, lapinavir, ritinavir, and those medications. And there seems to be a shift now because none of those have really jumped up and said, this is a, this is a, a, a panacea. And now there's a move to look at more um, immunomodulatory drugs, so tocolizumab and, and a whole bunch of other stuff which we're looking at here in Manchester. And of course, the development of convalescent plasma, a very old technique which is now being used in RCTs. And lastly, it's amazing to see science happening in front of us, but also a great concern that some of our evidence-based medicine principles have been abandoned. And I know you had concerns about the papers that were published in Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, which got withdrawn. For me, I think it's been a, oh, I hate the word, it's very X-factor, but a bit of a journey. A few months ago, we started off with the hypoxic, put them on a ventilator. And we've now moved to the hypoxic, take a breath yourself, think you've got time, and preferentially think about non-invasive ventilation. And so actually the management has become a little bit more tricky from the emergency department point of view. Obviously, we've had all the PPE stuff going on, which has added an extra layer of complication. But you're right. For me, you know, I'm keen on diagnostics. You know, well, at St. Emelins, we're very much of the Bayesian, what should we call it, group. And we think about pretest probabilities and sensitivity, specificity, likelihood ratios and all that. And you watch the news and you would think that all these tests are 100% sensitive and 100% specific. 
And it's just not true. And actually, probably the most interesting paper was the one from the very last journal club, which talked through how prevalence of disease affects the accuracy of your test results. And the changing in prevalence of disease can really affect what happens with the things that you get out the other end. If we could get that message out across the whole of medicine, that in itself would be an absolute bonus from all of this. I've just been antibody tested, as as many of our colleagues will have been, and I'm antibody negative, which is good, I think. It means I've been pretty strict and good with my PPE, I think. But when you actually get that result, because of what we know about the prevalence, does it really mean I'm negative? Because there's quite a low sensitivity on some of these tests. Can I stop using PPE if I was antibody positive? Probably not. And if I was antibody positive, it's not 100% specific, would I actually know that I've had it? Yeah, we, we are now talking and people on the shop floor are talking about probabilistic diagnostics. And that is wonderful to hear because, it's as you say, it's what we've been banging on about for years. Well, I'm antibody negative too. And I've had mine done as part of the vaccine trial that's been conducted out of the University of Oxford, which they do advise us not to talk about. So it's just you and me, Simon. We'll keep it to, to ourselves. Don't tell anyone else. But I've been part of that, I have to say, very impressive trial. But a few of us who are in that have come out and well, we're all antibody negative and rather surprised, actually. We assumed that with the high asymptomatic rate that many of us would have had this, especially bearing in mind where we hang out for most of our time. So is that the test? Is that the disease? There's still so much to discover. Yeah. And just to be quite clear, you were antibody negative before you took the vaccine. It doesn't mean that the vaccine's failed. We don't know that yet. Oh, no, that's entirely right. Yeah. Well, and who knows whether I've had the vaccine, of course. It's either that or I'm hopefully safe from meningitis. That's the way this works. You either get the potential COVID vaccine or you get a meningitis vaccine. So we will see. Uh, I'm only a week in and lots of swabbing and other things to come. But I hope, yeah, that vaccine process of the trial is hugely impressive down in Southampton. Lots of time and effort going into that. And I just hope it comes off. Yep. The pace and scale of science at the moment is remarkable. And it's really quite exciting to see, albeit in the presence of what is a terrible disease, which kills a lot of people. So it is worth going back and having a listen to those journal clubs, not least for the bits that we can learn for the rest of medicine and also listening to how these experts are critically appraising the papers. And you're getting experts from different realms as well. It's such a delight to have Ellie from Public Health, the virologists coming in and telling us their point of view. I thought that was fabulous. So do go back and listen. And Simon, I think we've got plans for journal clubs to continue. Yeah, we hope to continue that, probably not with the same frequency, go down to about uh, two a month. And we're going to move into other topics other than COVID. But it has been a great success. We get some people listening live, but we get several thousand people listening online to the recorded content. So it's a way of getting science out there and sharing it and discussing it. So we're, we're really pleased with it. And just a little mention here for one, Izzy Carly whose surname matches your Simon, and I believe you may be related, but without Izzy's huge effort, editing down those rather long webinars into listenable podcasts would have been impossible. So a big thanks to her. Let's move on to other non-COVID related content, because there has been plenty. And it started on May the 1st, May Day, with Dan Horner, our, well, everybody's favourite clot man, talking about the new NICE guidelines for the management of venous thromboembolism. VT is a hot topic at the moment. There were a few things to take from this guideline, I think. There were, I think some of the things in the guideline are really just approving what hopefully um, people out there are already doing. So the guidelines are a little bit behind the science. So things like age-adjusted D-dimer strategies, they've now been formally approved. The PERC rule, which is a way of ruling out PE without having to do any diagnostic tests in terms of lab tests, that's been now approved. And DOACs, what used to be known as the NOACs, but they're quite old now, so the DOACs, 
can be used as interim anticoagulation pending, you know, formal diagnosis of your PE or your DBT. Outpatient management, gosh, that's now approved, but we've been doing it forever. And we're also now looking at things like rivaroxaban, apixaban in the DOAX um, for longer term anticoagulation for VTE patients. So a lot of this is about just reinforcing where we should be. What, what I would want people to do is to go and have a look at the blog and then have a look at the guidelines and compare what the NICE guidelines now say um, in comparison to what you're doing at the moment. Because I suspect there may be a few tweaks along the way um, to update your profiles. And you're right, in, in COVID land, we're very interested in VT, but that is a different ballgame altogether. We don't want to go there today because whoa, there's a big debate about the the whole prophylaxis issues in VT and DVT in COVID patients. And on the webinars, actually, Dan does address that in one of the weeks this month. So lots to learn. Hopefully people are doing it much of that anyway, but it's now got the official NICE stamp and also seems a lot easier, doesn't it? So using the DOAX instead of having to do those injections should be a way forward to manage these patients safely and to ensure that we're treating the right people. In a rather prophetic way, Stefan wrote a very thoughtful post called Colour of the Wind early back in May before we had what's been going on in the world recently. And we're recording this early in June and there's a lot been happening around the world. And this is a thoughtful read, I think. I'm not sure that this is one that we can really talk about to give fair commentary to. It's one for people to read and form their own judgment, especially in the context of what's been going on around the world recently. Yeah, so George Floyd, of course, was buried yesterday. Um, The Black Lives Matter movement is in everybody's consciousness at the moment. And Stefan wrote about white privilege, which is essentially what this blog is about from his perspective um, growing up in South Africa. It's really challenging. It was really challenging at the time. I think it's worth a reread now um, in light of current events. But the perspective you read it from is going to be a very personal one. And I invite people to go out and see what it means to them and where it sits in their past experiences. Definitely want to sit down and reflect on. Interestingly, even back early in the month, this is clearly an important topic because it's one of our most read posts of the entire month. This does matter. It matters to us at St. Emlyn's. We'd encourage you to form your own opinions and to have a look at what is a very eloquent post. Back to the blog. And the next one was a journal club on a topic that's close to many of our hearts, uh, high sensitivity troponin and how we can use it to rule out chest pain. And this was a review of the loaded study, which was led by Ed Carlton down in Bristol. And there was an accompanying podcast as well. Now, loaded itself was this limit of detection in the emergency department, i.e. if you have a high sensitivity troponin in a patient who you believe is low risk for cardiac chest pain in that their ECG is negative and their first high sensitivity troponin is below the limit of detection, which you need to check for your assay, then we can fairly confidently say that that patient has not had a cardiac cause for their chest pain. It doesn't say they haven't got another cause for their chest pain, it just says that we can say it's not cardiac. I thought this was a really well-conducted trial, actually, and it's lovely to see emergency medicine at the forefront of evidence-based medicine. Has this changed your practice at all, Simon? Well, we have a strategy based in Manchester based on the TMAX score, so we're trying to incorporate this into our practice right now. You're absolutely right. And you can actually discharge a very large number of patients on that first troponin. And at the time when we're trying to keep as few people in hospital as possible, we're trying to get good turnaround times, we're all focused on COVID, but actually doing this kind of strategy can also support your overall hospital response to the pandemic. So yeah, don't forget about things like chest pain during this. We need to optimise all our pathways if we're going to have a good service. So on our podcast, you can hear a discussion with me and Rick about this journal article and also a review of high sensitivity troponin 
which is well worth a listen. And also on the Arkham Learning podcast, there was an interview with Ed Carlton himself talking through how this trial was done, things that he believes we can take from it, and also how he thinks he might do this trial again if it was repeated in the future. So both those podcasts are worth a listen. So after that, we had another COVID-19 post, but something different and not related to the webinars, led by Anissa. And this was about how COVID-19 has been affecting the different countries around the world and how they've dealt with it and what they've seen. And I thought this was a really eye-opening snapshot to take us beyond our borders to see what else is going on. I think it is really very interesting. Of course, as in a high-income country, we've got a lot of resources. We can get things like PPE. We have access to water. But looking around the world, and the virus isn't going to discriminate, the conditions and the, the challenges around the world are huge. And how do you wash your hands if you haven't got access to running water? You know, how do you treat patients if you haven't got access to oxygen? And we've seen all the difficulties of managing the oxygen in the UK. Can you imagine what that's like in countries which don't have the resources that we have? I think it is one of those sort of stop check posts that you need to read this and understand that in many ways, we're very fortunate in, in where we are at the moment. The challenges to colleagues and patients and people around the world are, are quite frankly enormous. And we're seeing big numbers now in places like Brazil which I know I've got a lot of challenges. There's going to be some very large numbers of deaths and cases around the world. So lots for us to learn by looking outside our borders and really important that we do that. It's so great to have Anissa on our team doing these things with us. She's a very welcome addition. There was another post that talked a bit about COVID-19, but was really about purposeful practicing. And this is another guest writer for us, Robert Lloyd, who also writes on the Pondering EM blog wrote a fabulous piece about South Africa and his experience working there a year or two ago. We've talked a bit about the way we practice at St. Eminence before. Was there things in addition that you learned from this post, Simon? Yeah, so the purposeful practice idea is that you've got this concept that you need to practice something for a long period of time to get good at it. So there was this thing about the 10,000 hour rule, if you remember that. You know, to be Johnny Wilkinson at rugby, you've got to do 10,000 hours of practice. If you want to be a, a concert pianist, 10,000 hours of practice. And what I've always said is it's it's not 10,000 hours of practice because, you know, many people by the time they get into the 60s have done 10,000 hours of driving, but it doesn't mean they're a good driver. It's what you do with that practice. It's what you purposefully decide what to do and plan to practice around. And I think what Rob was talking about with the COVID era is that we wanted to do a lot of this before the patients actually arrived. And so purposefully practicing about working out what the challenges are, where our weak points are, and working hard in those areas is what we need to do. So don't just practice the easy stuff, practice the difficult stuff. Find out what it is, practice it again, change your practice, practice it again, keep going round and round in the circles. And that is the route to mastery not just simply doing stuff, doing stuff with a purpose. I've been trying this with my children during homeschooling with their musical instruments. Every time they pick it up, they play the bit that they can play already. And I try and say, come on, boys, do the bit that's really tricky. And the thing is, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to practice stuff that you can't do. It's much easier just to do the things that you're comfortable with. So this does take you outside your comfort zone a little bit. But in the end, it will help, whether that's learning the trombone or it's being better at putting non-invasive ventilation on a patient. But don't imagine that this is easy. I think forcing yourself to do this is important, but will be difficult. You go back to music, which I think is a really good analogy. Um, I play the flute, and if you've got a difficult part of a piece, so you're playing a Mozart flute concerto or something like that, and there was a difficult bit, you would either practice that bit, but more often go away and find a study 
which challenged you in that particular technique. So something like double tonguing. Practice that until you got it right and then go back to the piece. And you can use the same principles in medicine. If there's one aspect of a practical procedure that you find difficult, you can take that bit out, practice it in isolation, then put it back into the wider psychomotor skills, and then the whole thing will work better. I find this is best done if you've got somebody else who can watch you and give you that peer support and peer review to help you get better. Again, just practicing the same thing on your own for a long period of time is not going to make you better. You need feedback. You need support. You need somebody to observe what you're doing. And as we've always said, we can learn lessons outside COVID for lots of parts of our medical practice. Trauma team leadership would be one. Even, well, let's face it, many of our workplace-based assessments are based on this, aren't they? The idea that somebody who is more expert watches a learner doing something and gives them active feedback. And we all know that that's much more challenging than it is to do a case-based discussion, but it's probably more valuable too. So think about how you're supplying that for your trainees. If you're a trainee, then think about how you're asking for those things. And also, if you're a consultant or a higher level doctor, don't forget that you're not beyond that. We've talked often about senior doctors having to practice, having to keep your skills up, having to make sure you're up to date. It's tricky. It's challenging because imagine asking a junior doctor to watch you doing something and then critique you on it. There's a risk there, but that's, I think, a risk worth taking. And my simple observation is the people who are most receptive to those techniques are the ones who need it the least. And the people who don't want it to be done are the ones who probably need it the most. I think we'll leave that thought to linger with our listeners for a moment. Our last post of May was something a little bit different from us. I think it's the first time we reviewed a television programme on the St. Emlyn site. But for me, this was a programme that I'd watched and I thought had messages for us all about how we look after patients in the emergency department. So this was a review of a programme which will be available on iPlayer for a few more days, I think. That's the BBC iPlayer in the UK where we can access programmes after they've been broadcast. And this was horizon and it was talking about Tony Slattery. Now those of us of a certain age in the UK will remember Tony Slattery as sort of omnipresent in the late 80s early 90s. He was everywhere. He was on commercials. He was appearing in Whose Line Is It Anyway which was an improvised show where these people would just get up and make up jokes and songs and I would watch it and think oh I wish I could do that. And he was very funny and bright and articulate and then all of a sudden he just disappeared. And he wasn't on the telly anymore. And frankly, he went out of everyone's mind. And this was reviewing what's happened to him. And for me, there were lessons for us to learn about how we look at our patients who come in, who we sometimes label, who have problems that we maybe can't fix and we find very challenging. For me to see Tony Slattery today and compare that to how he looked when he was doing all the telly was a stark reminder that there is a journey that patients go on to get to where they are with us. And we shouldn't forget where they started. And we should try our very best to understand a bit about that journey rather than making judgments about who they are or what they're doing or labeling them as that's just not helpful. And frankly, it could be any of us. So if your life had taken a different path, you might have been that person sitting in the short stay unit, shaking, waiting for your next dose of Claudia's epoxide. It's just in some ways a bit of luck. And Tony Slattery is clearly trying to come to terms with what's happening with him. And interestingly, despite seeking a psychological diagnosis, thinking that that might give him the answer, in the end, it came down to alcohol. And alcohol is something that we see a lot in the emergency department and is worth us giving some thought to. But it's everywhere. It's easily accessible. It's used a lot. One of my hepatology colleagues at Southampton is saying that now they're seeing people who 
had managed to stop drinking or at least limit their drinking pre-lockdown have now actually turned back to alcohol just because of the isolation and the seclusion that they've been undertaking in the last three months. So this is something we really do need to embrace and think about. Labelling patients just doesn't help. I think it was a a really good programme, actually, and brought out a lot of the points that you talk about. I think at some point we need to get um, Scott Weingart on the podcast and talk about free will, because that's another area which I think relates to this, about how much control do we really have about our actions and our beliefs and things like alcohol consumption. I think in medicine, we can often take the the high ground and say, well, you know, you can sort this, it'll be dead easy, just stop doing it. And actually the reality for lots and lots of different reasons, including things like free will and accessibility and cost and tradition and mental illness and all of those sort of things, it's not that easy. And I think if you if you know somebody who's been through this journey, then it will certainly uh, chime with you. But if you don't, or if you're, you're only starting in a career and you've not seen somebody who you know and respect sort of fall off the, the straight and narrow and their career sort of end as a result of alcoholism, which I have seen, then this is actually quite a good program. I think you're right. If it, it can happen to you, that's an entire possibility. It'll almost certainly happen to one of your colleagues um, during your career. And that's quite terrifying and very, very scary to watch, actually. But it does also remind us that emergency medicine isn't just about the recess room. That's not the only place where you can have valuable interventions. We can do good throughout the entire department. And although many of us dread the short stay ward round, CDU, whatever you may call it, there are things that you can do in that area that can have lasting effect and make a lasting difference to people if we approach them in the right way. It's an opportunity and one that shouldn't be missed. That brings us to the end of the month, but there's a couple of other things if we could just have a quick chat about those, Simon. Firstly, just wanted to mention about how education is going to have to change in the era of social distancing and perhaps what we're going to try and do at St Emlyn's to help with that. So we've started a project which I've entitled Lesson Plans. I know that sounds very scholastic or school-like, but really it's just an idea to give structure to the teaching sessions that we deliver to embrace both online and in-person elements. We've banged on for years about flipped classrooms, asynchronous learning, blended learning, all these very trendy ideas, but we want to try and actually embrace these now. So we are putting together a series of lesson plans where you simply click on one post and on that post it will give you several steps towards a teaching session, an introduction, a link to the Archem curriculum, and then a couple of pieces of learning that the learner can do in the session itself or beforehand. My experience is that most people who are asked to do stuff before a session tend not to do it. So I think our approach at Southampton will be to offer time in the session to do this, whether they're at home distance learning or in the seminar room with us doing it. So a couple of things to learn, get some knowledge, then a section of face-to-face interaction with a facilitator. And there's some cases provided with many of the lesson plans that you can use, followed by a summary and then a little bit of reflection afterwards or encouraging reflection. And each of these should last by about 45 minutes to an hour for each session covering a curriculum topic. We will have the whole of an induction program ready in good time for August. So we'd love you to have a look and use them by then. It's a new way of working, but one I think we have to think about in this new age of social distancing. And it is a real opportunity. Yeah, we sort of toyed with this idea in the past. We used to have uh, something similar running on a Moodle platform. But I think moving it onto the web, onto the blog world, I think is going to be uh, more accessible um, and a lot easier to use. So thanks to all the work you've been doing on that, Ian, because it is mostly your project. So if you have a lesson plan or a topic that you'd like to contribute, then do get in touch. Let me know and we can add it onto the structure. 
They're on the site, but they're not very obvious at the moment. When we're happy that they're all together, I will publicise them and you can have a look. If you would like to have a sneak preview, just get in touch either via Twitter or via the website and I can send you the link. And one other thing I'd just like to mention, COVID's really taken over everything in our lives recently, but it was only just a few months before that that a colleague of mine, Adela Aziz, died relatively quickly and suddenly of cancer. And he was a dear friend of many of us in the emergency medical community, especially associate specialist, staff grade, specialty doctors. He did a huge amount of work for them. One of the nicest men I've ever met, actually. So kind. And his family have started a GoFundMe page. They want to set up a medical facility in his home country of Egypt in his memory. And I just wanted to mention, I don't think we talked about Adele on the podcast before. I just wanted to really remember him and also say that that GoFundMe site is there. If you had a couple of pounds spare, I know his family would massively have appreciated it. And I think Adele would be humbled by the thoughts that are going out for him at the moment. It's all too easy to forget there was life before COVID. And he was very much a large part of our life before COVID. So please forgive my indulgence of mentioning a local colleague, but he was a special man. Simon, that brings us to the end of May. We're into June. I would say it's the start of summer, but the weather in the UK has been unbelievable. And hopefully burning away all those virus particles that are sitting on surfaces. I remember them telling us that good weather was a key to this thing going away. Who knows where we'll be in the next four weeks when we talk to you again. But we hope it's been useful. We hope you're enjoying St Emlyn's and the content we're bringing to you. Do get in touch if there's anything else you'd like us to cover. And as we always say, as good podcasters, please like and subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Apparently it makes a difference. Uh, we'd love to get our content out there to people so they can all share and partake in this community. But for me, from now, that's pretty much it. Simon, anything else you want to say? No, just wash your hands. Wash your hands and be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye.